When you lose in the playoffs to the eventual champions, there's a tendency to enhance the status of said defeat. I mean, if you lost to the champs and gave them a run, you might be a lot better than a first-round exit suggests, right? The Canucks had been bounced by the Stanley Cup winners in back-to-back postseasons, but they didn't wear that distinction as a badge of honor. Their scars of defeat served as constant reminders of the postseason tutorials offered by those who ruthlessly pursued the Cup. They'd stood toe-to-toe with some of the greatest players of all time and found themselves worthy of that level of competition. Now it was time to find out whether they were capable of being more than just sparring partners for a single round. We put that team back on the mat, man. Like There were some bleak times there for a while. For that next five or six years, he was the best power forward in the game. There was a confidence that we believed if we went out and played the way we were capable, we could score every shift. Now it's kind of league-wide. I want to come see the West Coast Express, you know, see these guys in action. That line sold tickets. That line cared about the community. That line gave back. We knew that we would never be satisfied unless we would win the cup. Everything, the whole thing. It's like a bad nightmare happened. In a matter of seconds, I mean, lives basically changed forever. As is the case every offseason, there are decisions to be made on players in need of contracts. In 2002, both Brendan Morrison and Dan Cloutier fell into this category, and both were restricted free agents. When neither player was able to come to terms on a new contract, each exercised his right to file for salary arbitration. We can't settle on a deal. So really, to kind of protect yourself as a player, your only option is to file for arbitration. So I filed. And I honestly believed deep down that I would settle before going to arbitration. I mean, the arbitration was just basically a safety net, just to make sure something would be in place in case I didn't get a deal done. I never thought I'd have to go. What Morrison describes is generally how it works. The player and team almost always come to an agreement before letting an arbitrator make a decision for them. That's how it played out for Kluche, who signed a one-year deal with a modest raise. However, Morrison's camp felt he was in line for a heftier bump in pay after having taken over as the team's number one center. Burke and the Canucks didn't see it that way. No, I'll be honest with you, and not to throw cold water on Brendan, we played 23 or 32, I might juxtapose the digits, but... We played like over a quarter to a third of the season where Brendan didn't register a point. As good as Brendan was and as hard as he tried, we had planned all along to get a number one center and not have Brendan in the one hole. We didn't feel he, he should get a big raise. We, we felt that he's playing with two all-stars. Unable to come to a resolution, the two sides entered into what would become arguably the most memorable arbitration case in NHL history. I found it interesting, actually almost comical at times inside the arbitration hearing. You have comparables, they have comparables, but their argument at times was, well, you know, yes, you know, Morrison plays on special teams, he plays on the power play, and he kills penalties. But the only reason he kills penalties is because we don't have anybody else that we can put out on the ice. (laughs) It's like, really? (laughs) Like, a couple of times I actually had to put my head down like I was going to, like, start laughing. So you're kind of, like, you're pissed off, but you're almost, like, laughing. Like, are these guys serious right now? I think my demeanor helped for sure. Like, I understood it's business, and I could see how guys get pretty fired up and that about it. So we get into comparables and players, and and anyways, it's their turn to tell the story. So they have a French lawyer on their side, and he starts going off on this tangent. This Daniel Dume, he told the story of, uh, he says, Mr. Arbitrator, he says, this is the story of the elephant 
and the mouse. And we're like, what? Did he just say elephant and the mouse? I'm like, what the hell is this guy talking about right now? So I'm like, uh, okay, well, this will be interesting. So he starts t- talking about uh, elephant and the mouse. They're in the jungle and, and they're walking together. And all of a sudden they come upon this raging river and there's a bridge across where the ropes are broken and the bridge is washed out and there's no way across the river. And the mouse is too scared. The mouse, he will not go. So the elephant says to the mouse, I will take you across, my friend. He picks up the mouse. Walks to the other side. And then he says, this is exactly the same as Morrison, Bertuzzi, and Naslin. Bertuzzi and Naslin are the elephant. Mr. Arbitrator, Brendan Morrison is the mouse. It was priceless. Honestly, man, I was almost in tears laughing. Like, I thought that was pretty funny. But again, you're like... Is this what they really think of me? <laughs> you, know, so you, have, you do have these mixed emotions, for sure. I remember when the hearing was over, literally, I took one step out of the room. All of a sudden, Berkey's right behind me, hand on my back. Mo, listen, just want you to understand, this is just purely business, and this is not you know, indicative of how we feel about you. <laughs> Morrison would have the last laugh from a financial standpoint as the arbitrator ruled in his favor. He was given a two-year deal worth $4.6 million, a substantial increase from the $775,000 he'd played for the previous season. Brendan got exactly the number that we thought he'd get, and I told him, I said, if you get any more than I budgeted for you, I'm trading you. But he got exactly what we predicted he would get, and we told him, you're not going anywhere, staying right here. While it may have seemed like an idle threat from Burke, he had recent proof of his conviction in such situations. Peter Schaefer, Morrison's linemate during his first season in Vancouver, had spent the past year playing in Finland after rejecting Burke's final contract offer. Shortly after Morrison's now infamous arbitration case, Burke traded Schaefer to Ottawa for defenseman Sammy Sallow, who would become an integral part of the Canucks blue line for the next nine seasons. Sallow joined a team determined to prove it had learned from its missteps and misfortune a team that was ready to become a true contender under Mark Crawford. We had been disappointed by our playoff losses, and we wanted to make sure that we solidified our playoff seating as early as we possibly could because, you know, we'd come off of a couple of years of playing against top teams. And so we wanted to make sure that we finished as high as we can. We'd never won the division championship. And I think that was a goal for us. I think that's what we wanted as well. So we set those goals for ourselves early in the year and and tried to make them happen. Those seasons with Crawford, he was trying to prepare us for the next step. And he obviously had done a similar ride in Colorado with the team that's gotten better. So it was just a natural step for us to, to move further in the playoffs and to learn from the experiences and mistakes that you made. And and I know we, we talked about it openly and, and we had meetings and talked about trying to think about it and imagine your day with the cup and just get that as something that, that we were going to achieve. I think we all felt that we we were going to get there at some point. Marcus Naslin's determination was shared by his teammates, but it didn't translate into a great start. Vancouver posted a pedestrian 3-4-4 record in the NHL's opening month. And while the Canucks' top line was effective, it wasn't dominating opponents the way it had the previous season. As October turned into November, the Canucks, and specifically the West Coast Express, Flipped a switch. Here's Marcus Naslin with some room. He shoots. Kasibi makes the save. Morris shoots. He scores. Vancouver won 12 of 13 games in November and finished the month on a 10-game winning streak. Naslin, Bertuzzi, and Morrison 
combined to score 23 goals and rack up 52 points in November alone, while goaltender Dan Cloutier was named the NHL's Player of the Month after posting a 9.20 save percentage and a scorching 11-1 record in 12 starts. By the time December rolled around, the Canucks were first in the Northwest Division, nearly on top of the Western Conference, and the West Coast Express had become a fixture on nightly highlight shows like the one Don Taylor was hosting. That was right in the middle of the dead puck era. And that team played sexy hockey. It was entertaining. It was fun. They had great offensive players that they didn't harness. Mark let them play. And Jovo was there in the back end, Olin. But they were allowed to play offensive, entertaining, fun hockey. When I coached Colorado, they were a sexy team. And the Canucks were now a sexy team, uh, largely because of that West Coast Express group. I think we played a very fun brand of hockey, not only in our market in Vancouver, but we were attractive around the league. There was a bit of a buzz following our team. And being a West Coast team, you don't really maybe get the accolades or the attention that you should out West at times, just based on you know what time we play games and when people are going to bed. But you, know, you could really sense in a lot of these buildings we went to that there was a buzz around our team and people wanted to watch us. Like, we were exciting. We could score in a time where the rules were a little different, right? I mean, clutching and grabbing, put your stick up, fending off a guy coming down, trying to break his wrist as he comes to the net. I mean, it was tough hockey. But these guys, with the pace that they played and the way that they worked off each other in the offensive zone, they were really tough to contain and defend. Ed Jovanovsky's point shouldn't be overlooked. The West Coast Express was pushing the pace of the game at a time when the majority of the league was more focused on preventing goals than trying to create them. Ray Ferraro was just making his transition from a player to a broadcaster and recalls just how unique the Canucks were given the era. I would have thought at the time, I think, they played a little bit of a reckless game. You know, like it was kind of a high wire act a lot of times because a lot of teams just didn't see the game that way, didn't play it that way. And so when you look at teams trying to corral these guys, like they just couldn't. They played a style that was not familiar to other teams. And so now you've got to try and catch up to that, try to slow them down. Then when you get the puck, you can't turn it over because if you do, it's a couple of passes and they've got another scoring chance. While there were other teams that could score, very few exhibited the type of flair the Canucks played with on a nightly basis, thanks in large part to players like Bertuzzi and Nasland. There was three years where it was that kind of fun, but that one year, it was like everything that we touched you can go back and anyone can go back and watch highlights and all that. Just the passing, the globe trotting, the different kind of plays that we set up that worked. It was just like everything that could go right went right, but at a high level and an exciting level that just blew a lot of people away. Up to that point, I, I felt that Vancouver was a lot of times, maybe because of the Pacific time, but we were a forgotten team. But we did start to create attention even on the road and had a good following in other cities as well. So that was fun to see. As you mentioned, I was just starting in media. So I'd go down to the morning skate and talk to the guys that I just played against six months before. And pretty commonly, the discussion would get to those guys and those guys fast. Like they weren't talking about the third line and the checking line and how physical they were. They're like, man, look at this line's good, eh? The Canucks were creating a stir around the league because of the way they played the game, and the West Coast Express was the main attraction. Not only were the seats full in Vancouver, but the Canucks had suddenly become a draw around the National Hockey League, even in places where they were used to seeing star power all the time, according to Trevor Linden, Ed Jovanovsky, and Henrik Sedin. 
everywhere we went. I remember going into Detroit regular season and thinking, oh, my God, we're so happy to see you guys because these games are fun. And I'm like, really? And it was just like it was kind of like we were a fun team. And it was because of, I mean, Todd was just incredible powerhouse forward that could just use his size and, and speed and physicality to make space. Marcus obviously was just a laser beam shot and, you know, brilliant playmaker. And, you know, and Mo was this guy that was responsible getting things done at both ends. But the way in which they played was so fun to watch. And it captivated the fans, which was really cool. Now it's kind of league-wide. I want to come see the West Coast Express, you know, see these guys in action. Because it was entertainment, man. It was like some of the stuff that they would do was pretty impressive, even for a grown man and, and a pro athlete sitting on the bench watching this. And they did some crazy stuff. So to have it kind of recognized around the league, I mean, these guys were bona fide stars. Let's, let's not say anything different. I, I think these guys were a lot of the face of the National Hockey League, and people were out to watch them. We were the team that people wanted to watch around the league. You could tell, like, there was a lot of, like, buildings that, that were sold out when we came in, and it wasn't because we were the best team, but we had the best line and the best offensive guys, and they were the guys at the time, and, and you, you could tell. That's when it really started to become, a, like, a buzz around the Canucks around the league. The buzz wasn't just confined to the arenas. Led by the West Coast Express, the Canucks had generated enough excitement to cause fans to congregate at their hotels in hopes of interacting with their favorite players. A lot of athletes are conditioned to expect such behavior from their admirers, but it was all very new and exciting for a group of mostly 20-somethings who were suddenly recognizable. Sitting back now, I can look at it and say, man, that's what a rock star felt like going into these road buildings and the amount of media that we attracted, the amount of fans that were outside of our hotel that were by the bus, it was like, it was almost like, and I know it sounds kind of corny, but it was kind of like Beatlemania, man. Like it was, we'd have to put different names under a hotel room and all this kind of stuff because of the fans and all this kind of stuff. But you had anywhere from 15 to 25 media each and every day in the dressing room conversing about what's going on, what we're doing on this, how the team's going to stop us. And it was kind of fun to be able to know that other teams were stressing out on how they're going to be able to shut our line down. Yeah, it was a little rock starish at times as far as the level of attention we got. Yeah, every time, didn't matter what time we showed up in the city, you know, there would be people outside waiting and following us. But you really felt the buzz when you came to a rink and, and warm-ups were on. Like, you knew you were on a good team and an exciting team when warm-ups were busy. Because people wanted to come down and watch you guys, and that was pretty cool. More often than not, the Canucks stars delivered on expectation, even though the team's torrid run of results in November cooled to average outcomes. While Vancouver's record over the months of December and January was only a couple of games over 500, the West Coast Express continued to pile up points. Naslin remains out on the power play. Here's Sopel in the near face-off circle. Sopel with the puck. Centers for Naslin. Shoots. Scores. Four for the captain. And it's 6-2 Vancouver. Ask and you shall receive. Oh, the captain is broken out big time here in Edmonton tonight. Naslin scored 20 goals in 28 games over that two-month span, while Bertuzzi lit the lamp 17 times. As a whole, the Canucks' top line collected 87 points over that stretch, and their potent power play was a big reason why. The West Coast Express not only attacked opponents with speed, they also opted for a puck possession game instead of the more prevalent dump-and-chase strategy. That style led to a lot of high-end chances and caused opponents to take plenty of penalties in the process. No team earned more power plays than Vancouver did that season. 
The Canucks averaged more than five-man advantages per game, and their top unit featuring Bertuzzi, Nasland, and Morrison made teams pay for their transgressions. When they got a power play, it seemed like it was just a matter of time that, you know, they don't get one this time, well, they'll get one next time. You know, like it was just remarkable to watch how all of a sudden, instead of just a group of pretty good players, that people quickly realized this team was really good and the headliners were great. They really took hold of the power play. And I think that's what happens when you become a good line. You start to take hold of special teams. You take ownership of them. And I thought that was a big part of why we were such a good team. If you're going to score as much as those guys score, you got to have a special, special teams. It was up to our power play unit. It was up to me to be able to figure out how to get an edge on them. And it ended up working in our benefit. I think I had 25 power play goals. Nazi had 24. Mo was in on every single play. We had Jovo, Matias, Olin, and our unit was just rocking the whole time. Bertuzzi's recollection is accurate. He and Naslin combined for 49 power play goals that season, the most by a pair of NHL teammates in seven years. Naslin's deadly accurate wrist shot found even the smallest of openings left available by goaltenders. Bertuzzi, however, created a different problem entirely when he set up shop in front of the net. His size and strength made it extremely difficult for defensemen to move him, even in an era that allowed players to take liberties in order to do so. Looking back at it now, oh my God, I don't know how anyone played hockey. The amount of grabbing and holding and snow plowing and all that, and you look at it now, it's like, oh my gosh, it wasn't the most attractive hockey. It was no hold bars. Bertuzzi figured... If they can shove me out of the slot, then I can do the same. So he adopted a push-off move to free himself up for scoring chances in tight. I remember to this day, it was Nashville, Barry Trotz, and we were just manhandling them. And power play-wise, it was pretty much anyone took a penalty against us, we were scoring. We had two or three different set plays, and I remember to this day, I was in front of the net, and I literally just, shoved them over to the side, Nazi to Mo, Mo to me, goal. And I remember Trotz complaining after that. And then we were pissed at them, kind of yelling at their bench, like, you know what, get, get stronger, get better, stay out of the box. And then slowly, word got around and got to the league and all that, where they ended up stopping that box out play, which I think is ridiculous. I think if you look at it, why can a defenseman push the offensive guy out from the crease, but the offensive guy without doing anything penalty-wise and having strength and all that, not able to box someone out to get the upper hand offensive-wise to the net. So I think there's a lot of sour grapes. And as the years went on, the calls started coming, and we were just going to have to be able to adjust to it. I thought it was pretty cool that our power play was that good, that there had to be a complaint and a rule change in order to stop it. Trotz was understandably steamed as Bertuzzi's power play goal helped erase a two-goal deficit in a Vancouver victory. And while the Canucks' power forward would end up getting penalized for his patented push-off far more frequently now that the officials were looking for it, his power play production didn't decline whatsoever. Support for Unreal West Coast Express comes from New Balance. Hey, I'm an active guy, and New Balance has literally supported me for well over a decade. From distance running to trail running to walking my dog, I've always got New Balance on my feet. Lately, it's been all about the Fresh Foam X series for me. 1080s for the road, heroes for the trail, and 880s for everything else. Support your feet and support local. 
Code the lineup of Fresh Foam X Athletic Shoes today at your local New Balance store in Richmond, Delta, and Langley. At Toyota, our vehicles have always had quality and durability built right in. Because in winter, even our potholes have potholes. Quality means everything to us because it means everything to you. Lease a 2023 RAV4 LE all-wheel drive from $99 weekly for 60 months at 7.19% APR with $2,800 down. Order yours today. Visit shoptoyota.ca or your Pacific Toyota dealer. It's time to Toyota. Referees and fans weren't the only ones giving Bertuzzi and his linemates more attention. As their popularity grew, the contingent covering the Canucks expanded quickly, both at home and on the road. Color commentator Tom Larshide explains why. They were a dream for the media because you'd get a quote or an interview or something that, you know, excited the fan. that they wanted to listen to it or they wanted to read about it. They certainly were the talk of the town. They knew they were good, too. You know, these guys, they did. Part of what made them appealing was their three distinct personas. Ever the classy, respectful European captain, Nasland had already become accustomed to fielding questions every day a big part of what the captaincy encompasses in a Canadian market. I'm not going to lie, it's, it's difficult at times, and, and I, I find the toughest part of it is coming up with answers when you might not have them, and you're expected to have them when, when the media comes in after games, especially when you're losing, obviously. But I think I took it as a challenge, and, and trying to, to hopefully, first of all, lead by example. I'm not a vocal guy, but earn the trust of, of your teammates, but also hopefully try to lead the team to success. Marcus carried a heavier burden because he was the captain. And that C wears on everybody after a while. And it's fantastic when things are good and when things are bad, it can be really onerous. But Marcus, he was such an honest and earnest person. And in some respects, a lot like Morris in that way, where if you asked a question, he would do his best to give you an honest answer. And he was always accountable. Like he understood what went with being a captain of a Canadian team. As reporter Ian McIntyre mentioned, Morrison was well aware of what Vancouver expected from its most prominent players. And the local boy was always willing to oblige when the microphones and cameras came calling. Well, Brendan was fantastic because he was just such a smart kid. And he also understood the market, I think, better than almost anyone because he grew up there. He knew what it meant to fans. He knew what he was representing. And he also was so grounded because he clearly was the third guy on that line. You know, people talked about Bertuzzi and Naslin, Naslin and Bertuzzi. But he was just always insightful and articulate and sensible in the things he said. Bertuzzi's relationship with the media, however, was much more complicated than that of his linemates. He presented this almost carefree, strong, loud, proud, not going to take any crap from anybody. He's the first guy I ever heard say it is what it is. He really is. I was like, man, what a dumb thing to say. And then I was like, Three weeks later, I was going, yeah, it is what it is. <laughs> Todd was Todd. And some games, it was great. And some games, he was ornery. Some games, you couldn't find him after a game if you didn't like how things had went. But he was always a guy that you could talk to. He was almost better to talk to than interview because you could sit down and if he trusted you, he would tell you why he was upset with you or his play or the game or the referee or whatever. And you you would have a discussion about it. And you'd leave the discussion having a little better understanding of Todd Bertuzzi. 
but at times, you know, he was with the media the same way he was on the ice, you know, extreme one way or another. No, it wasn't persona. It was just, I, I was immature as far as understanding where I was in the league, where I was with the team and with the organization. In my mind, I was there just to play hockey and, and that alone, I, I believe that the questions became so repetitive. It just bored me to death. And I look back on it now, I would have handled the media differently. I would have had a lot more fun. But I think that was me going to different teams and seeing the interaction with players and media that they're not all out to get you. They're just doing their job and all that. And I wish I would have handled some of the situations differently. But at the point in time, I was very private. I didn't want to be bothered. And I just wanted to play hockey. But I know for sure I've burnt a lot of bridges. But I accept what I did. And I'm okay with everything. But uh, in hindsight, I wish I would have handled it a lot different. I would for sure, if I'm talking to young kids, be able to help them out in that department that they're not all negative. There's maybe one or two that are. There's a lot of people that are in your corner. They just want stories and they got to do their job too. And I, at that point in time, I just kind of selfishly shut everyone out and made some mistakes along the way. But he didn't live in a vacuum. Some players chose to avoid seeing what was written or hear what was being said, but Bertuzzi was not among them. And while he most certainly didn't dwell on the commentary of those who covered the game, he would make a mental note when he caught wind of pointed criticism, especially from those he had a friendly rapport with, like Larshide. He and I had a little bit of a confrontation, and this was early before he really started. I'm not saying that this is the reason that he broke out to be the power forward that he turned out to be. But we were in Colorado. We were in the trainer's room at the time. I still remember this. And Bertuzzi went by and he said, and I'm paraphrasing here now, but he said, uh, hey, Larshad, I heard you were really ragging on me uh, the other night on the radio. And I said, I didn't rag on you. He says, well, I, you called me a floater, didn't you? I said, no, I called you a candy ass. And the players that were in the room, Trent Clad, I still remember, he just broke up laugh. All the trainers started to laugh and everything. And Bertuzzi just looked at me and he just walked away. He never said another word. And lo and behold, this guy who uh, I described as a candy ass all of a sudden turned into the best power forward in the game. I remember one time, and I can't remember which season it was, but he was going through a bit of a tough spell and he was spending a lot of his time on the perimeter. And the gist of the story was he needs to get inside and play like a power forward again. Stop trying to be a playmaker and be a power forward in front of the net. And then, you know, by coincidence, because I really don't think pros at the NHL level are driven by things they read in the paper. But, you know, he had a big game that night and he did a pass through the dressing room. I don't even know if he did a scrum. And he sort of turned to me and sneered as I was talking to somebody else. So is that good enough for you? And then just drop the mic and boom, he's out. I had no chance to respond. I would have said, yeah, Todd, that was great. Just do that every game. So he was a really fascinating and complex person to cover. I got along with him great. By no means was Bertuzzi only looking out for himself. In much the same way he was willing to stand up for his teammates during a game, he was protective of them in the media as well, according to Henrik Sedin. Even early on when we went through some tough times with the media here and, and, and fans, he was always on our side. And, and that, that meant, meant a lot to us coming from a 
a guy that didn't play hockey the way that we did and, and we had different styles, but he, he was always on our side. Yeah, I think you see it when you're young. You see how Marcus and Todd and, and those guys had to deal with it, but you don't really you don't really know until you're there yourself, especially in the Canadian market where every game gets criticized and, and uh, you need to be there every game and, and produce and, and do all the right things. As Daniel mentioned, he and Henrik were certainly taking notes as they continued their evolution as hockey players. Though the Twins still endured a certain amount of criticism, the West Coast Express consumed the majority of the attention. It afforded the Sedins less time in the spotlight off the ice and better matchups on it, which was instrumental to their development, according to Burke. The level that first line gave them to be on the second power play unit and work their way in was remarkable. And that's what allowed them to develop quietly. And we still had 100-point teams. But the other part was the leadership group in that room. You know, Marcus Naslin was a great captain. Matthias Olin was on that team. He was great with the Swedes. Todd Bertuzzi, Brendan Morrison. We, we had good leadership. Danny Kluche, Ed Jovanovski. So it was a good group that way, and it, it bought the kids some time. Not only them being that good. I mean, that, that helped the team win, which took pressure off us. Because I, I think if the team would have lost and missed the playoffs year after year, the pressure on us would have been so much uh, stronger. Uh, now we, at least as a team, we, we made the playoffs and mostly because of them. And we had some really good defensemen as well, but they took us to the playoffs. And that really put us in a good spot to be able to develop over time and not have the pressure of trying to make the playoffs each year. Because we, we, we made the playoffs our first couple of years and that, that helped, I think, in, in this market. Being around them for so long, I think you realize too that they talked a lot between games. They made plays. They came up with plays. They were always inventing new things to do. And I think that's one thing that we took from them too. Like come up with ideas how to make you a better line and a better player. And that's certainly one thing they did. Given what a hallmark creativity would become of the Sedin's game, that's quite a compliment from Daniel. But he and the rest of the Canucks were riding shotgun with what many considered the best line in the NHL at the time. Obviously, with that comes a lot of pressure, but we didn't feel it was pressure. It was like, it was some of the easiest hockey we were ever able to play. You literally put on your skates and you couldn't get out there fast enough to go and play. It was that much fun. That never really crosses your mind, kind of when you're in the moment. Like, you don't sit back at the end of the game and say, man, I might be playing on the best line in hockey. Like, at least it never happened to me. My approach was, we're a dangerous line every night when we're playing our game. And we have the ability to be difference makers every time we step on the ice. And that was kind of the mindset. And as an offensive player, when you're in that situation where you feel like you can score every time you step on the ice, I mean, that's a pretty incredible place to be. And, and that's how we felt. Like there was no cockiness. There wasn't any arrogance, but there was a confidence that we believed if we went out and played the way we were capable, we could score every shift. Brendan was such a good puck carrier and puck distributor. Shooting off the rush, Marcus was in a league of his own. He was there with today's Austin Matthews, with Joe Sackick, guys that can shoot the puck back in their stance, who have deception in their shot. From the angle they're going to shoot it in, from the, the release point, uh, scorers like Marcus Naslin have that ability. So that line had that element as well. And then offensively, it had such power with Todd around the net. Todd not only could bully his way, and he did bully his way, to score those goals from five feet and in, but he also was great at seeing where the open guy was in a pile with two guys on his back. 
he was a powerful, powerful guy that had exceptional hands and exceptional vision. And that's what made that line so special. They could attack at so many different angles. You always look for a line to have all sides of the game, like the physicality, the the skill, the smartness. And I think they had that as a line. And that was the most intriguing thing about them. They could play any kind of game. Like if it was a physical game, they would do that. If they needed to shut someone down, they would do that. And that's special. That's unique. And to be able to watch that firsthand was great. It was probably the peak and the most confidence that I have seen from myself and obviously from my line, but also the players that we were playing with. It was about everyone understanding their role. I think that's the key component is understanding. And they knew for us to be successful that some guys' minutes were going to be knocked down a little bit and that when push came to shove, we were going to have to stay out there and get it done. After Bertuzzi joined Nasland at the All-Star Game for the first time in his career, the dynamic duo rejoined their team determined to lead the Canucks to their stated goal of winning their division. Colorado had owned the Northwest Division since its inception in 1999 and had designs on a sixth straight title. The Avalanche hit the accelerator in February, winning 11 of 12 games as they attempted to reel in the front-running Canucks. But Vancouver stood its ground, picking up 20 of an available 24 points that month the West Coast Express once again leading the way. Nazan gets the puck on the right wing as the first penalty comes to an end. It's a one-man advantage. Nazan shoots, scores! Number 39 for the Canuck captain in Vancouver leads 5-1. And he regains the lead as the NHL's leading goal scorer. Nazan eclipsed 40 goals by month's end and rolled into March as the NHL's leading scorer. One point up on his former captain in Pittsburgh, Mario Lemieux. Some nights I might have had a slow start. Someone else in the line would take the lead and get going and, and vice versa. So we were always hard on each other, but, but in, a, in a healthy way. But it was one of those seasons where it was easy and it was fun to play. And you didn't really have to think a whole lot. Everything came naturally. It was fun going to games, man. Like We loved being on the road. We loved traveling. We loved everything about hockey. There was not one negative thing that you can say throughout that couple of years that we ever had. It was that good, and it was that dominant, and it was that much fun to go into rinks where they were packed, be able to go out, perform, and do what we did with some good times. You know, we challenged each other. We were hard on each other at times. We were demanding of each other, but there was no malicious intent ever it was always to make sure that you know the guy that you're playing with was pushing himself to be at his best which in turn helped our line which in turn translated into team success which was the ultimate goal they were competitive and they got into it on the bench too right like they were they got pissed off at one another and they would and this is why they were successful they would bitch at one another but that's how they that's how they were and that's how they were successful and they always worked it out as uncomfortable as it got sometimes on the bench, I just, I just mind my own business, you know, but um, they were dominant. They were a dominant group. Lyndon's description of the in-game dynamic between Naslin, Bertuzzi, and Morrison is substantiated by everyone who was on that Canucks bench. And their story served to reveal why Morrison's personality is a part of what made him the perfect fit between his demanding wingers. 
Brennan had to get it from Todd. He had to get it from Marcus. And he also had to get it from me occasionally. So I always appreciated his ability to be a stand-up guy and be such a good guy that everybody could bounce things off. And he was such a great receptor. As well as being a great pastor, he was a great receptor as well on that line. I think it's underrated his contribution just in that area of how he was able to handle the very strong personalities that he had around him. He made his line mates better. He had a lot to do with Marcus and, and Bert, you know, having the success they did. Because sometimes when Bert and Marcus started passing the puck, they would bypass Mo at times. But Mo, every time he had the puck, had to give it to these guys because these guys would chirp him. Brennan will tell you, those guys aren't easy to play with. And they're not easy on him. Like, he'd be on the bench. He takes out his teeth when he's playing. He's got a bad list. These guys would just yell at him. Like, we'd come back to the bench. You could hear him upstairs sometimes. And as he'd say, I was open on that shift. And Bert would say, I was open too. And we, they called Bert 7-Eleven, right? Because he was always open. Finally, we'd have enough and curse at them both and say, you know, you guys, you get on my nerves. You know, he's listening like Elmer Fudd. I mean, they were relied on to score every night. And, and if Beamer would not have been the guy that he is, maybe they would have changed it. But I think the coaches back then, they saw that Brandon could take the pressure on and, and the heat and the everyday struggle that would be to <laughs> to play with, with those two. Because they were both like really good people, but they knew that they had to score. And it's, it's not easy going into games every night knowing that. And it's not a lot of players that could handle that pressure as well, but Brandon could. And, and that's what people understand in this league, that there's a lot of good players that they don't enjoy that pressure every night to have to score, but Brandon did. He was the glue that was able to handle uh, all the elements that highly emotional line had. I, I include myself in that too. He had to handle all of that. And I've always had tremendous respect for Brendan for having those abilities. Crawford led his team into March with a seven-point lead in the division, but down a pair of essential ingredients. Dan Kluche and Matthias Olin each suffered a knee injury in the final week of February and both would miss a significant amount of time. Kluche was in the midst of his best season to date, and Olin was logging more minutes than any skater under Crawford's command. Confident that both of them would be back before the playoffs, Burke didn't go after any big names at the trade deadline, and instead elected to bring back a player who he knew would mesh with both the personalities in the dressing room and the identity of the team on the ice, Brad May. May's previous tour with the Canucks had ended in the summer of 2000. Nearly three years later, he returned to a much different environment. It was unreal, right? I got traded back and coming back to the West Coast Express in, in 03 and that team, it was electric. It was exciting. I remember landing at the airport. Now, I'm sure people would watch TV and probably maybe, hey, this guy might be flying in, all the workers. But I got a really nice reception and it was one of my favorite moments of my career it was my first game back, my second time. I got in a couple fights right away like literally in that first period and made a big hit. And we ended up tying 4-4 that night. But I was in the penalty box with Todd and there was a song that came on, Look Who's Back, Back Again. But they played that and I was sitting in the penalty box and people got up and they were cheering. And it was actually one of these moments where I had just been in the tilt, sitting in the box, you're full of adrenaline and energy. And it was like, really felt good coming back to Vancouver. May's presence underscores a characteristic of the team that's easy to overlook given the shadow cast by the Canucks' offensive prowess. Burke had assembled a squad that had as much toughness as talent and was anything but one-dimensional in his eyes. It was interesting. 
because we had the West Coast Express and we added the Twins, but we were the most physical team in the league by that, that year, too. Like, that was no accident. And so our attitude was, whatever style we need to play to beat you. If we have to run over you, we'll run over you. If we have to run around you, we'll run around you. For most of the season, they tried to run away from Colorado in the standings, but the object in the rearview mirror was closer than it appeared. With three weeks to go, the Canucks had a four-point lead over the Avalanche in the division, and Kluche was set to return to the crease. He needed a couple of starts to regain his form, but the Canucks managed to keep the Avs at bay in the standings. That wasn't the only race going on with their division rivals, however, as both Nasland and Bertuzzi were closing in on individual awards as the season drew to a close. With five games remaining, Nasland had a two-point lead over Colorado's Peter Forsberg in the scoring race while Bertuzzi's 46 goals were one more than Nasland and three more than the Avalanche's Milan Hayduk. No Canuck had ever won a scoring title, and only Pavel Burry had led the league in goals when he scored 60 in 93-94. Down the stretch, obviously Marcus was trying to win the scoring title and also the Richard Trophy. Burt was in the mix for the Richard Trophy, and there's so much talk about that. I think we maybe were a little bit distracted by that, to be honest with you, because we wanted so bad... You know, because Marcus was battling Forsberg for the scoring title, and both those guys, Marcus and Todd, were battling Hayduke for the Richard. And there was nothing more that I wanted. Obviously, number one is team success, but for individual recognition and success, for those guys to come out on top of the scoring lead and the goal-scoring lead. And I think there were a couple games down the stretcher that that affected our play a little bit as far as, you know, decision-making, you know, maybe forcing things a little bit. Hayduke scored three goals in his next two games while Naslin notched one, pulling both into a tie with Bertuzzi with just one week to go in the regular season. Naslin was also deadlocked with his lifelong friend Forsberg at 102 points. Most importantly, the Canucks had a two-point lead in the standings with just three games to go. Vancouver lost in Anaheim before earning a tie in Phoenix, while Colorado split a pair of road games in California to claw within a point of the division lead. Naslin led Forsberg by one point in the scoring. He trailed a red-hot Hayduke by one goal, while a suddenly snake-bitten Bertuzzi remained three goals behind. It meant everything was on the line as each team entered its final game of the season. Colorado was home to St. Louis in what was being billed as a first-round playoff preview. Vancouver was well-rested, and hosting an L.A. Kings team it hadn't lost to all season. Nasland was riding an eight-game point streak into the finale. It had all the makings of a coronation for both the Canucks and their captain. But that, as they say, is why they play the games. Though not in top form, the Canucks created the majority of the chances in the early stages, but were thwarted by posts, poor finishing, and puck stopper Jamie Storr. Here's Morris, and back to the blue line. Tobinowski shoots! Great save! Rebound, Nasland! Stop, still lose! The longer the game remained scoreless, the tighter the Canucks appeared to become. They knew what was at stake, especially as the entire arena became aware that the Avalanche had defeated the Blues and that Forsberg and Hayduk had taken the lead in their respective races. Individual trophies would be nice, but the division title was the prize the Canucks coveted. As they pressed for the game's first goal late in the third, a turnover turned into just that, for the Kings. Needing only a point to clinch the division, Vancouver put forth a desperate effort in search of a goal that would force overtime. 
but that goal was not theirs to find. Belanger with an open net scores. The Kings are ahead two to nothing with 43 seconds to go. And it's looking a lot like Vancouver's playing St. Louis in the first round. The Canucks and their packed arena were stunned. No division title, no scoring crown, no Rocket Richard trophy. All of them were headed to Colorado. Making matters worse, the players couldn't even retreat to the sanctity of their dressing room. They were giving randomly selected fans the jerseys off their backs in an on-ice presentation. So the Canucks sat in their own frustration while trying to muster a few smiles for their dedicated supporters. Nasland was the last to hand over his game-worn sweater, and then the captain grabbed the microphone in order to address everyone in attendance. The audio isn't terribly clear in what Nasland intended to be a reassuring message to the fan base, so you might have missed it. The two words that would quickly become the focus of what had transpired that day. We choked. An instant headline in the newspaper and discussion point on radio and TV. Two words that were simply meant to convey a feeling became a lightning rod for debate. I have to blame that a little bit on the language barrier because I I didn't realize that it was that powerful and that it would create that much attention. The meaning was we didn't follow through with the, with the goal we had set in the start of the season and, and that we'd followed throughout the season as well, being the divisional champs. So I was frustrated, no doubt about it, but I, I would have used a different word if I knew better. He was just being honest. And I can tell you honestly that as an organization, we did choke. There's no reason why we shouldn't have been a lot more successful. There's no reason at all. You can sit back here and I can sit here for days and still can't realize why we choked so bad, but we did as an organization. Berkey put everything in place and gave us very good opportunities. He brought some good veterans in, but Marcus just spoke the way we all felt. And I think there was some frustration on his part because I know one of his childhood friends and and good buddies was Forsberg, and Forsberg was always the guy when, when they talked about Swedish hockey players. And here was an opportunity, I think, and I've, and I've never had a conversation with Marcus about this, but kind of thinking about it now, I mean, that would have been a really nice feather in his cap to say, you know what, I, I beat him, right? I beat him. I won the scoring title and I beat him up. But to kind of, you know, have the guy who's kind of getting all the attention all the time beat him again, it was that was frustrating, I, I think. And I think that might have maybe contributed to some of the emotions in his post-game speech there. The one thing about Marcus was he wore his heart on his sleeve, you know, and he... He was emotional and he uh, he took things hard. I think that's probably why early in his career he had a, he he it was hard for him because he took his failures to heart. And I'm the same. I was the same way. And and it and, and it can be hard on you. You take these things home, and you know short memories are great in sport. And and so Marcus was. We were all disappointed. You know, we were so disappointed because we had our sights set on Colorado and, and to not get there was, was, it was devastating. Probably a bad choice of words, but at the same time, he was honest and he was, it was raw. When the captain of the team says we choked, you know that it's going to be a story. That's a story that's going to have legs. That one's not going to go away in the next 24-hour news cycle. 
But in some respects, it didn't surprise me because that was Marcus Naslin. He was such an honest, earnest player. Like he was just so straightforward. If you ask him a question, he would give you an answer. It wasn't in his DNA to try to spin something, let alone lie about anything. And I think he said what a lot of people felt. Like, yeah, the Canucks blew it at the end. So in that respect, that didn't surprise me. But I'd never heard a captain say that before. And I'm not sure one had said it while holding a microphone on the ice in the middle of all the fans when he said it. But that was, it was pure Marcus. The marketplace is a weird marketplace. It's a media that loves positivity when you're winning and loves negativity when you're not. It's a strange market, but I think people would have forgiven. They'll never forget that use of that word because it's such a, it's a hard word to even use. But I think people agreed with the assessment at the time is that we did show. He wasn't feeling that just for himself or for our team. He was feeling that for the fans. He knew how much they wanted us to be the champion of that division and to have the better route in the playoffs because it's an educated fan base. They know what the playoffs are about. They know the difference between getting a higher seed and a lower seed is. So as it was, we went from you know being a one seed to being a four seed. And we ended up drawing the St. Louis Blues, who was no bargain with Chris Pronger and Al McGinnis and Scott Mellonby and all those great characters that they had. The Blues were further along in their evolution as a team and had as much, if not more, pressure to deliver in the postseason than the Canucks did. Despite establishing themselves as legitimate contenders under Joel Quenville, St. Louis hadn't been able to overcome the likes of Detroit and Colorado in the playoffs. And while they'd certainly had more playoff success than the Canucks, the Blues likely felt a similar urgency to the one Morrison describes the Canucks feeling at the time. Okay, we lost to Colorado two years ago. They went on to win the Cup. We lost to Detroit. They went on to win the Cup. So you were learning in these playoff series about what it took to be successful in the playoffs. And we felt that we had learned some lessons. And, you know, we were excited to get back in a position where we could prove to people that we could apply what we learned. The series opened in Vancouver with the Blues routing the Canucks 6-0 in Game 1. Whether it was a hangover from the season finale or simply an off night, the Canucks had no answers in the opener. They'd get a boost on the blue line for Game 2 as Matthias Oland returned to the lineup after missing 19 games. But it was Bertuzzi who set the tone on the game's opening shift. Clears to the far side. Bertuzzi pulls Jackman over in the corner. First big hit, 10 seconds in. Todd's hit was such a big factor. You know, it, it kind of said a lot of things. That we're not taking this lightly and we're not done. I felt that that was what brought everybody back into it. The first whistle, they get a standing ovation. They threw more body checks in the first two shifts of this hockey game than he did in the entire game one. That trend continued on an early Canucks power play. Morrison holds the puck in. Osgood out of his net. Stops it behind the goal. Bertuzzi with a big hit on McKinnis in the corner. The Canucks would capitalize on that man advantage with Trent Klatt scoring the game's opening goal and Vancouver would even the series with a gritty 2-1 win. It was the hit against McGinnis that changed the series. It really was. Todd finished his check. You know, I've had a number of discussions with Joel Quenville about that. He thought it was an illegal hit, but, you know, I thought Todd just finished his check in, in a playoff series. That's what you want to have happen. It knocked Al McGinnis out of the series, and that really was the turning point. Unfortunately, and I hate it to this day because I got a lot of respect from, uh, I think I also separated Al McGinnis' shoulder in that, and I feel crappy because I got a lot of respect from him and all that, but 
when playoffs happen, man, it's no holds bars. You just, you got to go and go and go. And it was a very physical, like the two handing, the cross checks, the face washes afterwards, man. It was a grind that series, but we were able to stick with it, stick with our game plan and claw and fight back and put the pressure back on them. The series shifted to St. Louis, where the Canucks were stifled in Game 3. Despite the loss of McInnes, the Blues held the high-powered Canucks to just 14 shots on net as part of a 3-1 victory. Vancouver responded with a much more inspired effort in Game 4, but Chris Osgood turned aside 32 of 33 shots in backstopping the Blues to a 4-1 win and a 3-games-to-1 series lead. We believed in each other still, even though it was a difficult situation to come back from. But we knew that we, it's a cliche, but we had to focus on, on the next game in hand. St. Louis had a, a strong team and they played well, but we felt that we were a better team. Nasland had scored in game four, but for the most part, the West Coast Express had been held in check. Vancouver had mustered just four goals through four games, and the Canucks found themselves on the brink of another first round elimination. The situation appeared all too familiar, but Morrison says it didn't feel that way. We felt we were in every game, right? We honestly felt that we could have been up 3-1. So it was like, okay, boys, we don't have to change a whole lot here. We shore up a couple things here. We get a bounce or two. This thing is going to turn, like, immediately. There was a belief that our team was good enough to rattle off three games in a row. We'd done it multiple times throughout the year. Brent Sopel gave the Canucks an early lead in Game 5, and then the West Coast Express took over. Bertuzzi, Morrison, and Naslin each scored second-period goals, and despite a third-period scare, the Canucks kept their postseason dreams alive with a 5-3 win. That breakout performance carried into Game 6, where the Canucks' top line produced two goals in the first period. Vancouver built a 4-1 lead through 40 minutes and again survived a third-period rally by St. Louis to set up a deciding Game 7 back in B.C. McKinnis suited up for the Blues in the series finale as they tried to stymie the Canucks' comeback attempt. But he was clearly laboring, as was his team. A bad case of the flu had ripped through the St. Louis roster at the worst possible time, and the Canucks continued to punish their opponents physically. Bertuzzi laid another thunderous hit on Blues defenseman Bryce Salvador before his linemates broke a 1-1 tie in the second. Let's go with a wrist shot, stop by Elson, who's back to Morrison, scores! Brendan Morrison, and the Canucks lead 2-1! The Nazan on the right point, Tomanovsky still in front, trying to create a screen, Nazan with a wrist shot, scores! It's 3-1 Canucks in Game 7! Kluche made 33 saves on his 27th birthday, the Canucks completed the comeback with a 4-1 win, and Vancouver was off to the second round for the first time since 1995. The West Coast Express had come alive with the season on the line, producing 11 points in the three elimination games, and Bertuzzi says their general manager deserves some of the credit. Brian Burke was a huge reason why that series turned around. I remember he grabbed our line, and we went out and... We sat there and talked for about an hour, and he really turned our attitudes and what we were seeing around. He wasn't there to belittle us or to rip on us. He was there to build the confidence that we were lacking for the start of the series. Uh, we weren't able to score the start. If you look at their roster, they had, they've had some great teams too. Eh? They had McKinnis and Pronger. They had Jackman. In my mind now, they were the ones who should have had the most pressure on us instead because we're playing in Canada and we're playing in Vancouver, the expectations, everything was media driven. We just completely had a brain fart. 
for the start of the series. And so we had sat down with Berkey, the three of us. Then we were able to free ourselves up to go out and play and be able to come back and win that series. As the Canucks celebrated their victory, they also got word that their rivals from Colorado had been upset by the Minnesota Wild. That stunning result, coupled with Anaheim upsetting the defending cup champs from Detroit, meant two of the top three seeds in the West had been ousted. Instead of having to face the playoff-proven avalanche, the Canucks would meet the workmanlike Wild in round two. Vancouver was made a heavy favorite despite the fact the two teams had split their five meetings in the regular season. The Wild had scored the fewest goals of any team to make that year's playoffs, and while they didn't allow many goals, they appeared to be an inferior opponent. Minnesota always played us tough, but again, we felt if we played the way that we were capable of playing that nobody could beat us, to be honest with you. We felt that we were that good of a team. But Minnesota played hard, and they played together. In fact, they played their system so religiously that Burke made public mention of their devotion. It's not a hockey team, it's a cult. They've got total buy-in on their system. Vancouver opened the series with a dramatic overtime victory. Matt Cook forced the extra session with two seconds to play before Minnesota native Trent Klatt buried the overtime winner. The Wild evened things up with a hard-fought 3-2 victory in Vancouver, but the Canucks posted a pair of 3-2 road wins to take a stranglehold on the series. The Wild were suffocating their normally high-flying opponents, but the Canucks had ridden a hot power play to back-to-back opportunistic wins. With Vancouver just a single victory away from the Western Conference Final, a tale of Bertuzzi chirping some of the Minnesota faithful made the rounds. Tom Larshide with the Coles Notes. People were lining up to see if there was going to be a Game 6, and he says, forget about it, you're wasting your money, there won't be a Game 6. And they used that as a motivator too, you know. (laughs) Uh, But that was Bertuzzi. The veracity of that story is debated, but it's fair to say Bertuzzi was known to express his confidence at the time. Others might not have been as outspoken, but even Canucks management felt certain of the series' outcome. Against Minnesota, I thought we had that series. We had come back, we were down 3-1 against St. Louis, miracle comeback. Now we're rolling, we go into Minnesota, we have a great setup for a practice rink, the weather's great, our team's excited, We, we get ahead in the series... We're going to win that one, too. Perhaps that overconfidence explains the egg the Canucks collectively laid in Game 5. The desperate cult from Minnesota ruined an anticipated celebration in Vancouver with a convincing 7-2 win, a loss Crawford shoulders the blame for. I blame myself for that Game 5 loss because I didn't have them ready to close out the series the way that we needed to. Though disappointed, the Canucks remained calm in defeat and were quietly energized when they heard what had happened in the other Western series. Anaheim had knocked off another heavyweight, eliminating the Dallas Stars, the top seed in the conference. No Dallas, no Detroit, no Colorado. Everyone in Vancouver was thinking the same thing as Jovanovski. We would have played Anaheim. We beat them four times that year. Not saying that we would have beat them in a seven-game series, but I liked their chances conference finals against Anaheim, opportunity to go to the finals. I like it. With that as motivation and an opponent that had won just once in five postseason home games, the Canucks liked their chances of finishing the series in six. Vancouver dominated the first period, but Dwayne Rolison turned aside all 12 shots sent his way. Minnesota's power play went to work in the second, scoring twice on three opportunities. The Wild outscored the Canucks 3-1 in the third en route to a 5-1 win forcing Game 7 back in Vancouver. 
The problem is you can't get ahead of yourself. And Minnesota was a really well-coached team that played a strong team game, and they had nothing to lose. I mean, everything they did was a bonus. I think they had knocked out Colorado in the first round in, in seven games, and then we were up 3-1. We felt confident, maybe too confident, because we ended up losing a couple of possibly clinching games, and, and then going into a game seven, that's always a, a dangerous situation. One the Canucks had handled well two weeks earlier, though it's easy to forget the Wild had done the same against the Avalanche. With no day off between Game 6 and 7, both teams would need to summon whatever reserves of energy remained. The Canucks had the advantage of a boisterous home crowd behind them and channeled that energy into their play. Vancouver was clearly the better team early in the game, but couldn't solve Rolison until halfway through the second period. Just 61 seconds after Olin gave the Canucks the lead, Vancouver struck again. Lead pass, Bertuzzi, in loan, Bertuzzi scores! Bertuzzi's first goal of the series put the Canucks up 2-0 and they were in complete control of the game. Holy Stavlin, puck in front, they score! Oh, a weird one, as the puck sailed in front, Kluche never knew it was in the net! Wasn't that one where it was that freaky shot over Kluge, hit the back of the glass and landed in the slot? Like, when shit like that happens, you got to look at it and just like, oh my God. To win a cup that I learned is you got to have a lot of luck and a lot of healthy bodies in order to win it. It's the hardest trophy to ever win. And with a goal like that, it just shows that there wasn't much luck on our side. I look back on that game, I don't think we could have played any better through two periods than we did. We had a 2 nothing lead. Todd scored the second goal. It was a, just a spectacular goal. And they get within a goal. Like, they didn't have a scoring chance. And they get the lucky goal. But again, it's how you respond. There's a fine line between playing responsible defensive hockey and playing not to lose. Up 2-1 at home with a spot in the Western Conference Final on the line, the Canucks looked like a team trying not to make a mistake. The Wild saw it too and began to create more chances. Just over eight minutes into the final frame, Wes Walls tied the game with his fifth goal of the series. The roar of the crowd was suddenly a murmur as the fans tried to collect themselves while their hockey team did the same. Vancouver's advantage was gone, but there was still time to get the job done. The arena sprung back to life, urging the Canucks to find the all-important next goal. It only takes one shot, one moment to change everything in such instances. And that shot would come with less than six minutes remaining. There's a quick counter by the Wild. Darby Hendrickson scores! Darby Hendrickson, the former Canuck, has given Minnesota a 3-2 lead with 5-12 left. You know, I remember Darby Hendrickson scores their third goal. I mean, you know, uh, another tough, tough one there. A slap shot right from the blue line that finds a way in. And, and next thing you know, holy crap, what just happened? We're down 3-2 now. <laughs> Everyone knows how that ends. We just couldn't find another one. And that's that. Morrison's account needs little elaboration. The Wild added a late power play marker to put the game completely out of reach. But the ending had already been written. Hendrickson's goal had paralyzed the home side. It had taken over an hour in real time for the Wild to fashion their comeback. But as Ian McIntyre describes, it felt like an instant. Normally, when one of these hockey crises is coming your way, you can kind of see it coming. And you can see the disaster before. 
But this was just like the Titanic hitting the iceberg in the middle of the night. You know, they were a period and a bit away from going to the conference final, and they're up 2 nothing at home against a team that they should beat and probably should have beaten before it got to Game 7, and they lose. That's tough. The Canucks' dreams of a Stanley Cup run were crushed, not by the Hall of Fame Red Wings or the Cup winners from Colorado, but by the unassuming group Burke had labeled a cult two weeks earlier. That was a bitterly disappointing loss. I still have nightmares about that. Yeah, we got way ahead of ourselves in that one. That was a team that we should have knocked out easily. We got too far ahead of ourselves. They were a trap team. We knew they were a trap team. They were going to suffocate you in the neutral zone. And we basically just, we fell into their trap. They took everything offensively kind of out of us. And we got a little bit, we got a little bit reckless as far as how to break this open. And we ended up making too many mistakes. And I really think that was our best shot at going to the cup. Bertuzzi's assessment is shared by many. But as he and the Canucks found out against Minnesota, there are no guarantees. Anaheim was playing great hockey and would eventually meet New Jersey in a seven-game Stanley Cup final won by the Devils. We actually got caught looking ahead, and this was a mistake by us, 100%. Learning this years later was we started thinking, oh my God, we're going to spend a couple weeks in in California because when we beat Minnesota, we're going to pound the Anaheim Ducks. That's what we thought. We really did think that. I think we were sadly mistaken, and we didn't get that opportunity because we got caught being distracted, looking forward. We'll never know if the Canucks would have won, but those who were part of that team firmly believe it had all of the necessary elements to win a championship. We definitely could have gone to the finals that year, and I I really felt that the team had everything it needed to win. It played the right way. We played a very complete game. We had depth, and we had superstars in the right positions. I think that team was built for a longer run was a team that had the capability to make a longer run. Just the way things were shaping up, you know, the seasons that everybody had, yeah, there's no question that was probably our best opportunity, yeah. Those who disagree usually point to one thing, goaltending. They say Dan Cluche wasn't good enough to win a cup. For Burke, it had nothing to do with Cluche's ability, but rather his availability. We feel that Dan Cluche was good enough to win a Stanley Cup, and he was not the reason we didn't win. The reason we didn't win is he got hurt every year. He got hurt every year in March or April. He was battling back through injuries. We could never give him a healthy shot at playing in the playoffs, and he never came through for us because of that. Not his fault. I love the guy. Though the Canucks had improved in both their regular season and playoff performances, it didn't feel that way. The fog of failure clouded any sense of accomplishment. They had earned more points than any team in franchise history. Naslin, Bertuzzi, and Morrison were the NHL's highest-scoring line that season with 272 points. In fact, that single-season total is the highest any line has ever produced in Canucks history, even to this day. Though Naslin failed to win both the Art Ross Trophy as the league's top scorer and the Hart Trophy as the NHL's most valuable player to his team, he did win the Lester B. Pearson Award, now known as the Ted Lindsay Award, as the league's most valuable player as voted by the players. Yeah, that was surreal when I heard the name being called. I was uh, nominated with Peter Forsberg and Joe Thornton, and I I didn't expect it at all. So it's just one of those moments where you're wondering if you really 
heard your name being called. And obviously, a very, very humbling experience when all your peers voted you as their MVP that year. Nasland was selected to the NHL's first All-Star team for a second straight season. And for the first time, Bertuzzi was named to it as well. For two players who'd fought through significant struggles early in their careers, it was meaningful recognition. But the lingering remorse from the playoffs was more powerful than any sense of individual satisfaction. There was only one way to prove what they believed to be true. And the road to redemption would be more challenging than any they'd ever traveled. Coming up on the next episode of Unreal West Coast Express. Now, we weren't the young, up-and-coming team. We were now a team that was supposed to be good, that was supposed to win, that was supposed to be a premier team in the league. Well, if they're not going to pay me, then, then move me kind of thing. Like, I always believe that if you produce and you do good things, then you get rewarded. Tom Bertuzzi was worth every penny we paid him. That was a cheap shot by a young kid on a captain, leading scorer in the league, and we get no call. Get no call. It was a borderline hit, maybe. But I didn't make a big deal out of it. I, I just wanted to get back playing. It was in the midst of what was becoming this unruly, irretrievable game. There was this feeling like before the game ends, something is going to happen, and something certainly did. In a matter of seconds, lives basically changed forever, right? Unreal West Coast Express is a production of Toolkit Content in collaboration with GoGoat Sports. Audio production is by Andre Deacon. Writing and narration is by me, Scott Rentoul. Podcast supervision comes from Aaron Johnson. NHL game audio courtesy of the National Hockey League. Special thanks to the following NHL personnel. Hannah Riednauer, Matthew Maniker, Teresa Wiltshire, and Nick Martinez.